Welcome back to NALFA's Affordable Housing Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Ward, NALFA's Senior Membership and Operations Associate. Today's guests are in our own backyard, the DC Housing Finance Agency. They're here to talk about their award-winning project, Livingston Place at Southern Avenue. I'm pleased to be joined by Christopher Donald, Executive Director and CEO of DCHFA and NALFA Secretary, along with Blaise Rostello, Development Director of Affordable Housing at the Gilbane Development Company, and Claudia Schlossberg, Principal at Castle Hill Consulting and former Senior Deputy Director and Medicaid Director at the De- Department of Healthcare Finance. Thank you all for joining me and congratulations again on your award. Thank you. Yes. Well, let's dive right in without further ado. So to kind of start us off, can you share with us the inspiration behind the project and kind of what motivated its creation? Sure. So um, let me um, start by kind of giving you the perspective from the Medicaid agency and the work we were doing uh, back in 2016 uh, to really try to address the need to increase capacity to meet the needs of older adults with disabilities in home and community-based settings. At that time, uh, when I was in the agency, uh, we only had in the entire city 33 uh, assisted living beds that were certified to accept Medicaid payment. Um, Yet we faced overwhelming demand for uh, affordable, accessible housing. Uh, I think everybody is fairly familiar with the fact that uh, affordable housing is certainly Uh, at a premium in the district. Uh, At that time, uh, there's less than, I think, 700 units of uh, public housing that meets accessibility standards. And we were really struggling to help and assist residents uh, who needed uh, housing and supports to access those services in the community. We had people in nursing homes who wanted to leave. We were actually under a lawsuit Uh, an Olmstead lawsuit uh, that was um, filed to compel the district to increase access to home and community-based services. So I was looking at assisted living as uh, a potential solution. Uh, So one of the things we did while I was in the agency, and one of the reasons why we had so few beds that were uh, reimbursable by Medicaid was at that time, the assisted living reimbursement rate was $60 uh, a day. Um, and so it just wasn't feasible um, to serve people if that's the reimbursement rate. So um, at that time, we increased the reimbursement rate substantially. Uh, and so that, I think, uh, became a catalyst uh, to attract uh, people like Blaze and other developers who are interested in beginning to develop these projects. We went to see Claudia I don't know if it was in 16, but probably 17, 18, when she was still with the Department of Healthcare Finance, uh, when they were standing the program up. And, you know, this was a, a whole new world for us, but uh, the program had been deployed across the country and other places they had used bonds and credits. So we were going to be an essential part of the program. And so we wanted to get our arms around, well, how do you underwrite something like this, right? What are the risks? And it was so different because the rents were kind of the smallest part of the mix, right? And there were all these supportive services, which really drove the revenue for the project. And so for us, it was looking at the pro forma, really understanding that we went to visit projects that were already in existence. We talked to a ton of people. 
Uh, we talked to people who were in the capital markets who actually would buy these bonds because they were a unique buy, right? They were a high yield bond um, and they were uninsured. So that was something different for us. Uh, the LIHTC investors were different. They were a very small pool. And so it just, it was this kind of novel structure that we had to get our arms around to make sure that the residents were ultimately going to be safe because they lived in, lived in a stable project, right? Uh, and that we could make sure that the investors on the capital markets were going to be safe because the project did what it was supposed to do. So it was a really interesting opportunity for a lot of the folks who worked on the transaction. They had to get really smart very quickly. Uh, but ultimately, we got it done because we had a great partner um, in Blaze and Gilbane uh, and with their partner, Dante's partners as well. And Allison, just want to thank you for the invitation to, to be on the podcast. This is awesome. I'm grateful you guys are doing it. Um, you know, for us, the inspiration, we had a, a, a couple of other, so we, we partnered with Dante's partners on the development side and also another group called the Carding Group, who was involved in um, a number of assisted living, affordable assisted living projects um, in different states. Uh, this, this, this was the first in, in the District of Columbia, and we all kind of came together um, early on in the project and, and formed a partnership. And I think what inspired us behind it, you know, we have a tagline to our company, it's called developing dynamic communities. And we often talk about, well, what does that really mean? And the inspiration for us is the people that are, are, are living in the buildings that we're creating. We build great buildings, but often it's, you know, how is it programmed? How is it designed? How are the, where, where is the revenue and supports coming for, for the services that people may have, whether it be, you know, affordable assisted living or otherwise. And so this was just a great challenge for us. We, we knew there was a great need. It was demonstrated in the, in the market. Um, we had conversations with, you know, all of the agencies who were involved and they were telling us, you know, yeah, we only have 33 Medicaid beds. It would be great to have more beds to serve, um, you know, this population. They're, they're either being provided services in, in, how, in housing, you know, in their homes, and that may or may not be adequate, um, they're, or they're in skilled nursing facilities and they don't need to be. And so for us, it was, it was just a, it was a, a challenge that we, we wanted to undertake. And, and I think, you know, we, we knew that we had the right team in place to, to take it on. Um, and then, you know, ultimately it's serving, you know, the most vulnerable kind of population. And, you know, we all, we all have parents that age, we all go, we see the aging process, right? So there's just this human element of, um, you know, taking care of, of the people who raised us, um, whether it's your, you know, your parent or your, your aunt or your uncle or, or anybody that, you know, you can relate to that. And I think when, when we peel it all back, that, that ultimately was, I think, something that inspired us too, which was just, you know, who, who is this population that we're serving and how can, we provide a home where people can have the last years of their life in community and in dignity. Well, it sounds like you guys had a lot of intentional partnerships and it's really great to see your passions show through this project. So our conversation just now actually cues up my next question very nicely. Were there any key partnerships developed throughout the course of the project? And um, if so, I know you've mentioned some of them. Can you tell us a little bit more about those relationships? I can do it from the developer perspective to start and then they could add. So the housing finance agency, DCHFA was huge, hugely helpful partner all throughout the underwriting and the structuring of it. And Chris and his team, they were just fantastic. Um, and then the two other 
kind of key DC agencies that are involved on the front end, both from a licensure perspective and then a regulatory perspective going on. And, and Claudia can speak to those. Claudia was very helpful in, in helping us understand who are the right people within the agencies um, when we had questions or challenges with you know, discrete uh, aspects of the project. That's DC Health, which licenses um, affordable assisted living as a facility, and then DC Healthcare Finance, which provides the Medicaid provider license, um, which is what are the is the revenue source for the services. Um, and so those three agencies are really the, the critical key agencies. And then also for people who are not on um, what's called the elderly and persons with disability waiver, the EPD waiver, and which is the Medicaid waiver that funds services for the residents in the building. They, um, if they're, if, if somebody is not on that waiver yet, but does qualify from a, a level of care and a financial need, that they, they have to go through a qualification process and a screening process. And that's done through the Department of Aging and Community Living, which is DACL. Um, so those are all the kind of key agencies that uh, in terms of agency and developer partnership. Um, and then we had, like I said, we had a tri-party um, development ownership partnership. Um, we also had a, a nonprofit involved for uh, a small piece of the ownership as well called H Street CDC, who was helpful. Um, so those are, those are all the partnerships from our end that were really critical. Um, and the last, I'll let Chris, Chris, you can speak to the, the, the you know, bond, he already did a little bit, the bond purchaser and the LIHTC equity investor are, are key critical partners as well. Yeah, so um, the folks who really at the end of the day made this thing go um, were the bond buyers and the investors. And I think PNC was a LIHTC investor here, mm -hmm. uh, which is really important. Uh, and then I think Sistema actually bought the bond a really interesting group out of Illinois um, who does all kinds of neat stuff. And so they really came together um, to create this team and make sure that the project had the funding that it needed. Um, you know, this is certainly not vanilla ice cream. It's not even a fudge sundae, right? It's kind of some bespoke ice cream that Jose Andreas would have at one of his restaurants. So it, it took a lot of doing to get this thing to come together. Uh, and in fact, I don't think that Sistema and PNC had ever worked together on a deal like this before. And so to get these folks in the room together to pull this off was, was quite the feat, right? And we weren't necessarily directly responsible for it, but kind of providing the platform for it to happen. Right? And so Sistema actually came into the second transaction like this as well. And so we are really beginning to develop some kind of long-term, very durable relationships that are gonna facilitate more of these beds being created to house more of these vulnerable populations. Uh, and you know, Blaze has just talked about this a little bit, but this is, it can't be emphasized enough. Um, assisted living care is very expensive, right? And what we are able to do with this product is to span the gap for people who are of low and moderate means so that they can have a place that they can live with dignity that's beautiful, affordable, and healthy, right? Uh, and to live in kind of this very vibrant place with all of these amenities that, you know, many people don't have on the market rate side, right? Like my father's at a facility right now um, that's all of those things, right? That this program is actually gonna be deployed to, right? So the, the residents actually have the ability um, to live somewhere they can be really proud of. And so when we talk about partnerships, you know, it's the financing, uh, ultimately when these projects are delivered, like. The Livingston is another example of a beautiful project 
right? A, a place that I want to live if I were at that point in my life that I could be very proud of, uh, very well appointed. And, and so those partnerships kind of run the gamut, but are required to have uh, really committed people, no matter who's at the table, who understand the mission, right? And want to see the residents um, really live that part of their life with some joy and some dignity. Absolutely. It's really great to hear how you've built these lasting relationships throughout the course of the project that lays the groundwork for a really nice web of affordable housing advocates in the DC area. So kind of moving on to question number three here, were there any obstacles faced during the creation of your project? And if so, what insights or best practices could you share with our listeners um, about these hurdles? So the one thing that I would say that I'm surprised Blaze didn't mention is uh, operators. One of the biggest yeah. challenges finding good operators. And like I said, we flew out to Illinois to meet with one that we actually didn't, or the team didn't actually end up working with, but everybody can't do this business, right? And so some of that proof is going to come up, you know, as they continue, there's an operator uh, operating right now. We have another one coming online shortly at a subsequent project to see how these folks do a couple of things. Number one, just how they manage the business. Because as I said earlier, the biggest part of the revenue is coming from the operations uh, of the facility. Number two, how do they do with managing the population of residents, right? Because every jurisdiction has its own flavor uh, of folks who live in these facilities. Number three, how are they gonna deal with the economic development piece in terms of making sure that people in these communities have an opportunity to get jobs, right? So there's a very complex ecosystem that works at these developments that has to kind of come together all simultaneously, like, you know, very complicated opera, right? Uh, and if, it, if it's not right, then um, you have to retitrate, you have to try again. Um, but the only way that these projects are going to be successful is for that kind of dance to come together and, and everybody to play their part. And finding the right um, operator is essential to that. And there are not a lot of good ones out there. There's a handful and the very good ones stay busy. Well, it sounds like this was an intricate process of working together to make this project happen. And I'm really glad our listeners will be able to hear how passionate you all are about learning from each other to succeed as a team. Focusing more on the community aspect, what has been the impact on the surrounding community since the creation of your project? It's a beautiful building. It's right kind of at the entryway into the district from Maryland. Um, so it, it's visually a, a nice piece of architecture. When you walk into the facility, it's a beautiful building. So anybody who like interacts with the building just from an architectural standpoint, it really has changed, uh, I think, the character of that particular area. There's And there's still, I think, you know, areas right around there that are going to continue to see investment and redevelopment um, that, you know, the, the agencies and the district are looking to, to continue to invest uh, resources in that part of the city. So that's one. Um, it's an employment generator. So we've got, you know, about a third of the workforce, I think, is, you know, lives right in the immediate zip code. Some of them walk to work. A lot of them, you know, take public transit to work. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a wonderful thing to have a, a job in your backyard and to you know be able to, to commute by walking. Um, and that's, I think, been transformational for some of the, the employees. So kind of pivoting towards the future, 
what is your vision for the future of this project? Where do you see it going? Where would you like it to go? Kind of give us the lay of the land um, looking forward. So I'm really hoping um, that this becomes a model. Um, Again, I I can't stress enough how important it is that something really be beautiful um, from the very beginning, right? And and kind of breathtaking. And so um, that encourages people to want to stay there, right? Which is the essential part of this because people do have housing choice, right? And in some instances, people are coming from living with their families or independently. So there's, there's gotta be kind of this bridge uh, into the facility. Um, my hope is that, you know, this is only one of many. Um, I don't want this to be the first nor the last. We have some others that are in the pipeline. I'm, I'm hoping that Blaze will go out and find a couple more sites and do it over again. <laughs> so, um, but I'm really hopeful that we can do this in, in such a way that it's meaningful to the people who live in these facilities and to the city city really needs this, right? And, and part of the business case when we first started uh, working on this project was that, hey, you know, as Claudia started off the conversation saying, we don't have a lot of these and we have a lot of need. So h- how are we going to bring those two things together? So the more that we can do, the more that we need kind of an undermet need right now for a very vulnerable population. So my, my hope is that this becomes a model that people get really excited about it, that we can actually start creating some jobs with livable wages, right? Like, so if if we can do this, people can uh, earn enough money to be able to stay in the city, to be able to feed their families, to be able to do all kinds of wonderful things. So I'm excited about it. Uh, I know that we can do it. We're we're seeing it happening now um, and and more people are expressing an interest. So my, my hope is that these projects can deliver and be massively successful. Yeah, I think one of the things uh, this might strike Chris or or Claudia uh, don't know about me. I'm always more interested in is there a way to deliver you know services without government support? And I think um, until there's a like a private charitable model of delivering services to some of the most vulnerable population, my interest in the vision for future of this project and like other kind of supportive housing projects is how to deliver the services the most efficiently with the limited resources that all of us are paying for through taxes, right? So we're all paying taxes and all of it is getting, you know, allocated, um, uh, you know, through various programs. And so, you know, there's the housing, affordable housing industry in general, there's been a lot of movement, not just in this affordable assisted living space, but also on the supportive housing front where Medicaid is becoming a a source to pay for service delivery. And that's fantastic. Um, You know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge resource that's, that is needed um, because it's not, you know, I haven't seen a, a, a super efficient private delivery model, but I also think there is, you know, the tendency where we we can just kind of get into the we know what the rates are, we know how to, you know, we know we know this can support, you know, X number of people, and let's deliver the services go, and just to continue to 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 get better so that those dollars are are most efficiently uh, utilized. Um, and, and I think the last thing that I hope, you know, for, uh, projects like this is that, um, you know, uh, it ends up that people are able to track that 
this ends up being a cost saver too, because the the the, the down the the be cost benefit analysis from a policy standpoint, if you're looking at the allocation of these resources, is you know where are people if they're not in a Livingston place or they're not in somewhere else? You know, are they in a hospital? Are they in a skilled nursing facility? Are they on the street? Like all of that is extremely expensive that we all pay for too, and so you know that benefit piece is often a harder piece to track and measure, but I, I, my hope is that, that that'll continue to be on the forefront too, both, you know, efficient delivery and showing that this is, this is way less expensive than, than not doing it. Those are my, those are my, uh, my visions, hopefully that will happen. <laughs> Can I add one more thing? I'll add one more thing. Uh, so in this country, at least, if you have wealth, if you have means, you can't afford assisted living. And we know what the private market offers, you know, any num even in the in the district, any number of beautiful uh, buildings where, you know, you can live and get lots of different services. We have continuing care retirement communities. It's, it, you know, you, you can get that. Now, because we've developed Livingston Place and some other properties, if you're very poor, if you're very low income, you now have access to comparable type services, still limited, but we're building that capacity where we have not figured out how to provide that level of service is for the sort of forgotten middle. And I do think that with some policy changes that have come down from the federal government, particularly the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, there is a window of opportunity to expand eligibility for a Livingston Place or another assisted living, like um, uh, living in place for people who are above the Medicaid eligibility level, uh, but still meet the LIHTC uh, income requirements of 60% AMI. And so I'm very interested in that and, and moving in that direction to make to, to see if we can expand eligibility for assisted living to those individuals who are still relatively low income. 60% of AMI is, you know, you're not, you can't afford, you know, the private places, but it would um, it would make a, a huge difference in people's lives uh, as well. So that that that's my hope for the future. Well, I know I speak for Nelva when I say we're very excited to see where this goes, and uh, we'll be watching along. So, kind of wrapping us up here, um, two more questions for you guys. So, as the first assisted living facility in Ward Eight. Livingston Place can act as sort of a model for similar properties to come. Can you share any advice or insights with our audience who might be looking to start an affordable housing project like yours? You know, I think starting an affordable assisted living project, what I would say is um, make sure you have a very well capitalized uh, partner who has a lot of stomach uh, for um, uh, the inevitable amount of twists and turns that come up on these projects. Um, and like I said, it takes, everybody said this, it takes partnerships across the board, um, but especially at the financing level um, uh, in order to make a project like this uh, go. And we, um, you know, we continue to see that be, you know, we will ho hopefully it'll, it'll, it'll open up and more people will do it, but there is a pretty, um, pretty clear delineation of um, investors and lenders who know the affordable housing world, um, but 
aren't interested in in figuring out underwriting, understanding the risk, and and ultimately getting their uh, organization or institution to invest in an assisted living um, building, which is really, like Chris mentioned, it's a whole operation uh, and a whole operational analysis and underwriting. And so, you know, I think that in you know that that being said, um, they're they're amazing. Uh, they're amazing projects. They're serving, um, you know, like I said, the most vulnerable population I think you can can serve. Um, the the employees that are working at the facility are just amazing, dedicated people who care about, uh, you know, not just having a job, which is great, having a living wage job, but actually caring for people who um, would not have a place to be. You know, um, you talk to any of the residents at Livingston Place and they are like, you know, just can't believe what a godsend it is that they have a home and that they have a community um, and that they have um, people around to help uh, with their their daily living and just care about, you know, how they're doing. Um, at, you know, oftentimes at that end of life is, uh, or last parts of life could be very lonely, you know, and so just to be um, in a community kind of setting, um, you know, I, that's one of my favorite parts of the whole process is just going there. And like, I just find a resident and sit down and just chat with them. Like how, you know, how's it going? How do you like living here? You know, and, um, and, and, and just listen to them, you know, and listen to their story and their family and they're still, you know, and they're, and they're so grateful to be there. Um, so I think my insights are, you know, it takes a lot of perseverance, but, you know, once, once you get, get through it, um, you know, it, 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 the, the joys and the reward are just, they're, they're beyond even just a, an affordable housing project, which we've been involved in a number of them. They really are uh, life-changing for people. I can just add, uh, again, from my lens, um, the experience in the district is going to be different than the experience in another state or jurisdiction, because we like to say, you've seen one Medicaid program, you've seen one Medicaid program. And so you know, people are listening to this and saying, wow, this sounds like a great opportunity. The first thing I would say, besides addressing the financing and having your partners with capital and so forth, is make sure you really, truly understand the Medicaid environment. Um, not every Medi one, one of the big problems nationally that we see is that in most Medicaid programs, if they have assisted living in their waiver, the rates are still very, very low and really don't support uh, the level of programming that now exists at Livingston Place and, and some of the other facilities that are that have been developed. Um, the, and the way those payments are made or calculated or how you bill for services, all these things factor in. So it is just really critically important uh, as you start out this project to understand the Medicaid environment. Really, in that particular state too. In that particular state, <laughs> yeah. very, very carefully, uh, yeah. very, very thoroughly. And then, you know, once you figured it out and you figured out it's going to work and you, you know, move forward to get the place open, you know, operations are key and really understanding how to, how to put all those uh, business processes in place, helping residents with, with eligibility, all of those things are really important. What I will say, I was just on a call this morning with people from Livingston Place talking to some of the other newer um, operators doing exactly what you just asked. What are the lessons learned? We were talking, here are the things you need to watch out for. Here's what we learned. This is what we're doing. So we're already sharing information among the operators. And um, I've said this to Blaze a million times, you know, being first, <laughs> you, you know, you, um, you know, you're, you're going to experiencing uh, things, you know, problems, mistakes, error, you know, you're going to have to work through a lot of things that the people who come 
uh, uh, after you will will benefit from from those 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 uh, uh, issues that you've encountered, and that's already happening. We're seeing that happen, so I'm really pleased about that. That's really great to hear. It's awesome to hear you guys speak about your project in such glowing terms, as it deserves to be spoken about. But I'm really grateful that our listeners will be able to hear from and learn from you guys today. So I know we're a few minutes over, but I want to get this last question squeezed in here if we could. So since Livingston Place is an assisted living facility, what were some things you had to consider or do differently than when working on your more traditional projects? Uh, yeah, so this was a really big deal um, when we were stress testing um, the numbers. In a conventional uh, senior living project, uh, you've got your LIHTC rents, you've got your debt, whatever that is, right? And you put the people in the beds and everybody's happy, right? Here, not so much. Um, here, the LIHTC rents would not be enough to pay for both the sticks and bricks and the services, and the services are an essential part of any type of assisted living facility, right? And those services come uh, include three hots and a cot, right? Blaze alluded to this earlier, there's nursing staff that's on site, right? There's a huge programming component to make sure that the residents in these facilities continue to be engaged, right? Um, and so there, there's a lot that goes into operating these facilities on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it's a model that at least at this agency, we had never seen before. So when we were taking this for approval, we had to be able to explain to people that this is how this works. This is how much revenue comes in. Claudia mentioned um, the pay rate. Uh, what she didn't say is we have the highest pay rate in the country, right? So in a lot of ways, that makes this very easy to finance, right? We're not worried about the revenue stream and it's been increasing every year. Uh, and so we're really lucky to have that kind of infrastructure, but there were so many pieces of this which are just so fundamentally different than senior housing that I don't even think they're, they're not comparable, right? It's like apples to star, star food, right? Yeah. Uh, just really classes outside of themselves, so. I would say three things, Allison. Um, on the underwriting, sizing of reserves and higher debt coverage service. That's just like kind of baseline. They're, they're underwritten a lot more conservatively. So there's a lot of reserves at the forefront because they take a, you know, a while to get up and running and um, and there's you know just a higher debt coverage ratio. Uh, the second is um, the labor market is this isn't this isn't acute to the District of Columbia. It's a problem nationally and Claudia spoke to it before, but it's something we just don't really consider so much on a traditional affordable project like I said like, it's not, we're not having a terrible time finding, you know, um, uh, super or maintenance or porter folks, but most of this, the labor um, challenges in the market are, are more on the, you know, CNA and some of the nursing and, and entry level, um, you know, service delivery side. Um, so that's, that's definitely something we, that is, is distinct. And then the last, I think, which we're starting to, uh, we've been doing, um, but we were only that we were the first project in DC and now there's going to be a couple more. I think you're going to see like a small advocacy group start to spawn that where we're sharing information. So we're doing it loosely and I think it'll continue to take shape and get a little bit more formalized over the coming months and years. You know, most, most places in the country that are doing just affordable housing, they have some group like that, that is just, you know, making sure um, that the policies and priorities um, 
are, are being communicated to the, both the agencies and the council people or the local elected officials that ultimately are approving budgets that get set by those agencies. So that, the, the, that normally that infrastructure exists. <laughs> when we go into any place that we're, we're doing, it's, it was pretty loose in, in, because there was only 33 beds. So there wasn't really a, a much in the way of advocacy. And Claudia has, has been kind of a key person in helping uh, orchestrate that advocacy um, from all the people that are currently providing uh, assisted living, affordable assisted living. Awesome. Well, thank you, Blaze, for that perspective. And thank you all for joining me today. It's really awesome to hear about your powerful team that you've made together. And I, for one, can't wait to see what you guys do in the future. Awesome. Thank, thank you. So thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Nalpha Affordable Housing Podcast. Be sure to join us next time for more insightful affordable housing discussions.